Welcome to the OCC Podcast. Whether you're listening to this at home, on the road, at work, or in the gym, we're so glad you decided to join us as we study God's Word together. We hope and pray that through this ministry, you will grow in your relationship with God as well as become a chair for disciple maker. But for now, sit back and let us help you see how the Bible applies to your life today. All right. Welcome. Welcome to church. Uh, so, uh, good morning, first of all. If you haven't been welcomed, my name is Brenton. I'm that guy. Um, <laughs> today marks a shift in our, our series through the Gospel of Luke. So, Luke can be broken down into four different Gospels. Um, can we get the house lights up just a little bit? Sorry. Um, okay. So that's for you guys. So you guys can take notes. Uh, we have a lot of notes to take care of. We're going to be just traveling through a bunch of passages and stuff like that. Um, so if you have your Bibles, that'll be good. But anyway, so Luke can be broken down into four sections, four themes, if you will, that give a general guide for understanding and describing the flow of the narrative. So chapters one through four thirteen deals with backstory. Okay, so you have John the Baptist's origin story and his ministry. Then you have the Christmas story in Luke two, and then Jesus' childhood and teen age years, and then up to his baptism and temptation. So that's part one. And then from chapter four to verse uh, 14 to Luke 9, 50, you have Jesus's ministry in Galilee. This is the public ministry of Christ. He's performing miracles. You have a lot of uh, teachings and sermons in this section. And then in Luke 9:51, uh, Luke writes, he set his face to Jerusalem. And so from chapter 9, verse 51 to Luke 19:27, you have his journey to Jerusalem, which is just what we finished up last week. So this is his ministry in Judea. It's Christ turning his face in, to Jerusalem and heading there and all the encounters with the Pharisees, the stories, the parables, um, all point to the gospel and to the reason why he came to us. Okay, and a lot of the passages in this section provide us with really deep theological thoughts and insights. And so some people view this third section to be really the, the meat and potatoes of, of Luke's gospel. Okay, so now today in our in our sermon series, what we're, we're now starting is called the, the part four. This is the Passion Week of Christ, okay? So and we'll carry this theme through the end of Luke, okay? So from now until we finish the book, we're going to talk about all the events that will lead up to the eventual trial, execution, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, okay? So now in our passage, we are told it's Palm Sunday. Um, this is the Sunday before Easter. It's not Palm Sunday today, so don't freak out. Uh, you still have ways to, to bite your Easter eggs and things like that. Um, but in our passage, it is Palm Sunday, and the cross is in sight at this point, at least in Christ's mind, and, and here's where we're going to pick up our narrative. Uh, but before that, let me pray, okay? <clears throat> Father God, uh, I'm nervous today. I don't know why. Normally, I'm not very nervous, but uh, God, I'd, I pray that my words are not my own. Um, God, they don't need to hear um, somebody give their opinion on what the Bible says. God, they need to know your truth and your word. So God, I pray for eyes to see, ears to hear, and I pray, God, that you would be magnified, that you would be glorified, that they would see you um, and glorify you. And God, that you would use me and speak through me um, as you do, as you do with James. Um, God, that you would just use this time um, to speak to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start today in verse 28. So if you have your Bibles, go to Luke 19, 28. If not, uh, a lot of the verses will be up on the Sky Bible. Uh, but heads up, like I said, I'm going to be jumping between passages, between um, testaments. And so it's just going to be a lot, okay? So 
Verse 28, and when he had said these things, stop right there, what are these things? Well, as Pastor James just walked us through, Jesus had just been telling the parable of the minas. So this is the one where the 10 servants get a wage and then one was faithful and given charge over 10 cities. One was given charge over five cities. One was unfaithful, did nothing with his mina. And then Pastor James said that this is a man who truly didn't know God because he didn't know the character of God and he did nothing with what was given. Now, I tell you this for several reasons. Uh, if you haven't heard that message after, don't listen to it now, uh, especially people online. Um, don't listen to it now. When you're done, go home, listen to it, because it's a good one. Um, but two, I want to remind you that verses are never standalone in the Bible. We always have to pay attention to context, okay? And then number three is that to remind you that Luke has a method to his madness. Uh, the reason Luke is putting that, that story directly before this one, Palm Sunday, um, is because there's an important footnote at the beginning of that story. Uh, we read in verse 11 that the hearers, the crowds, they all supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. You guys see that? So in their minds, it was game time, okay? So put yourself in their shoes. Up to this point, excuse me, everyone in the crowd, I think, is acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. You know, remember back to chapter 9, verse 20, Peter asked, who do you say that I am? And all the people said, well, you're John the Baptist, or you're Elijah, or you're, you're one of the ancient prophets. And Peter says, no, you are the Christ. Jesus, you are the Christ of God. Now, Christ here is the Greek equivalent to Messiah. And as Jesus continued in his ministry, this title of Christ or Messiah was often communicated and associated with Jesus. So you have Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, now heading down to Jerusalem, into Zion, the chosen city of the chosen king, the capital city, and they're probably thinking, all right, it's about to go down, right? They're all in victory formation, and they're just like, all right, run off the clock, take a knee, it's over, tell that woman to start singing, God's kingdom is finally here. Now, here's one of the times that we as readers on this side of the cross are ahead of the game. And what I mean by that is, as you've noticed, a lot of times when we teach the Bible, we have to kind of explain and put things in context because there are just major obstacles and hurdles that need to account for that this ancient text spoken to and written to uh, an ancient people, and we're 2,000 years later. So there's, there's a little bit of a gap there. Uh, but in terms of the meaning of Messiah or Christ, I think we have a leg up on this one, okay? Because, you know, we've seen the movie, we see how it ends. Because when we hear Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, we hear it in terms of salvation. We know why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And in fact, we know why he came in the first place, that first advent. And that's to be the propitiation for our sins, which is it's just a fancy way of saying atone for our sins. The perfect spotless lamb of God to die on a cross and be raised again three days later, right? And we also look forward to Jesus coming again, the second advent, where the kingdom of God is established forever and where we as believers in a nutshell will welcome in that reign of God and, and celebrate and worship God forever. And so that's what we think of when we hear Messiah. But for the ancient Jews around Jesus's time, they, they didn't see it that way. They were only paying attention and hoping for that second advent. Okay, they thought the king is here and this kingdom is gonna last forever. So I'm sure you all watch sports from times to time, times to time, time to time. Um, and do you guys know the, the part where the athletes, like near the end of the game, they'll stand up on the benches and they'll just wave to the crowd? You guys know what I'm talking about? They'll do that and they'll wave and like, oh, see you later. Go home. We've won. See you later. And they're, they're smiling and rumming it in. 
I mean, it's basically what every single NFL team does going into Cleveland, right? He teases me, so it's okay. It's okay. So I think this is similar to what the, the crowds are doing in this passage. They're just, they're, they're kind of waving goodbye, Rome. Been nice knowing you. New sheriff in town, his name is Jesus, and he's going to restore Israel. All is going to be right, and we are going to be the new superpower. You see, for them, the preservation and might of Israel was what they believed the world to revolve around. So when Israel was displaced, conquered, or heaven, or sorry, when Israel was displaced or conquered, heaven was ajar, or so they believed. John MacArthur, he put it this way, they believed that heaven is not what it should be because Israel was not what she should be. So now let's look at the word Messiah because it helps us frame our context even more. The word Messiah means chosen ones, uh, chosen one. And it's a lot of times denoting kingship. So David was a Messiah because he was the anointed man chosen by God to be king. And so after David's death, Israel looked for a future Messiah that would be just like him and reestablish the prestige of, of Israel, okay? There was even a promise given to David that, you know, he would have this king from his, from his lineage. So then came Solomon. Things started off okay, but he was not the Messiah. And, and then, you know, the split of the kingdoms happened, and then there's just a series of terrible kings. And after failure upon failure of the Israelite and Judean kings, and then exile and slavery, and then being reconquered, and then allowed to come back, Israel just got to the point that they expected the Messiah to be the waypoint of the end of the age. They looked forward to a future Messiah who would establish his rule for and through his people. Okay? So let's keep reading. Uh, and he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, verse 29, when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. I'm going to stop right here. Uh, Bethphage and Bethany are two cities about a half a mile outside of Jerusalem, uh, up on the hill. And uh, Bethphage is just a small, obscure town. I'm not sure any of you guys would, would even really know of that place. But Bethany, you guys should know. According to the Gospel of John, it's where John the Baptist did his baptizing. Uh, so keep in mind, this is a place where it was being preached that there was another that was going to come soon that even John was not um, worthy enough to untie his, his sandals, uh, okay? Uh, and then Jesus showed up and he was baptized and John was like, hey, that, this is the guy, this is the guy. And this is also where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. Mary and Martha are, are disciples uh, of Jesus, uh, friends of Jesus, and Lazarus was that guy that Jesus raised from the dead. I do that to, I'm joking, it was a big deal. But that was supposed to be a joke, but it wasn't funny. <laughs> so uh, Jesus is walking into these towns where they clearly know about him, all right? They, they've seen him and heard the miracles. They've heard these prophecies and they've heard sermons. And again, they're pumped up because they know hey, he's finally going into Jerusalem. It's going to happen, okay? And not only that, but according to John 12, Jesus had just been anointed by Mary with that expensive perfume. And so all of this would be pretty fresh in their minds, all right, so let's go on, continuing into verse 29, end of 29, going into 30. He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. So what's this all about? Well, if you can, turn in your Bibles over to the prophet Zechariah chapter 9. Now, Zechariah was a prophet in the Old Testament around the, the time of Israel's exile from Babylon near the end. And from history, we know that Persia comes in and conquers Babylon. And then the Persian king shows favor to Israel and lets them return to their homes so they can rebuild the Israeli temple a second time. 
And then in, uh, in chapter seven and eight, as, as they're, they're home and they're starting to rebuild, they're just kind of distraught. They're like, oh man, should we still grieve? Like they're worried about the future. They're worried about what's going to happen. And so they ask Zechariah, is God's kingdom coming soon? And the prophet tells them, hey, look, you need to be faithful and live according to God's standard, to be a nation that stands out as a beacon of light for Yahweh. Then in chapter 9, we see a description of the lay of the land. As Matthew Henry writes in his commentary, Israel is a lily among the thorns of nations. But don't be afraid. God will protect you, Israel, and lift you up. So Zechariah prophesies that there will be a day where the Messiah will come. So this is Zechariah 9.9, 9, uh, 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah prophesied that God had not forgotten about Israel, that he would protect her and he would send a king that was righteous and full of salvation. And that would bring peace to all the nations and his rule will be everlasting. Again, we on this side of the cross, we, we kind of know what's going on, Right. We see the first and second coming, but, but the Jews, again, they, they couldn't fathom the complexities of God's plan. Even though Jesus would ride in on a donkey, which is the symbol of a king coming in peace, uh, I think they, they kind of just said, oh, that's really a horse, okay, that, which is the symbol for coming into war. They, they saw that Israel didn't have peace and they believed Jesus was going to bring it to them. He was the returning king that would make things all right. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 31. Uh, Luke 19, 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, sorry, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus foresees that there will be some pushback to his command to commandeer this animal. And, and he being God pre predicts all that the person of these people are going to come out and say, and, and they're, they're going to say, hey, why are you taking this donkey? Or, or in other words, on whose authority are you taking this animal? And their reply is to say, the Lord has need of it. Now, notice they didn't, they didn't say Jesus. This is not a name drop, okay? Um, what seems obvious here is that they didn't need any more clarification than the Lord needs it. They know who the Lord is. And knowing about this commotion, they'd probably be willing to give it up. Maybe they're even a little bit excited and honored too. You know, like they're coming out and like, hey, why are you taking this? Oh, the Lord has need of it. The Lord needs my donkey? Are you kidding me? Okay, yeah, go ahead. Go, go. That's awesome. Okay? That that's, might be what's going on. Then verse 35. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on a colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Okay, now this part makes sense to us, right? Because when we have like the, the mayor or the president or whoever come into to Lewiston, we all take off our jackets and we put it down so the limo can drive over it, right? Like we, no, we have no idea what this is about, okay? So this is another crucial difference between our culture and first century Jewish culture, okay? Firstly, this is a sign of respect. Kings are dignified and riding on a bareback donkey is just no way for a king to ride into town. So this was the common thing to do. Look at 2 Kings 9, 13. 
Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So this is a very common thing to do. Um, people put their cloaks under kings so that they would be properly seated as a king. And then the other thing it signified, it was a sign of submission. So to put your cloak as a seat um, or for his donkey to walk upon, it meant that you were submitting yourself to this person's rule. It's a, it's a way to place yourself under their kingship. So you, you can't really lay down on a donkey and then be like, go ahead, Jesus, sit on me. You know, that's not going to happen. And you can't literally lay out in the road and have the donkey walk all over you. That's kind of nonsense. So what they did is they put their cloaks down and said, okay, we support you as our king, as our leader. We are under your rule, King Jesus. Okay? That's what's going on. Thir verse 37. As he was drawing near, already, 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 on the way down the Mount of Olives. So again, he's going down the Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem, again, a mile or so away. And, and he can see the walls. He can see the city lights. And Jesus has be begun his final descent into Jerusalem as king. Anticipation is building. You know, if, if this was a WWE match, you'd hear the entrance music coming in, you know. I'm just kidding. I don't know what that would be. <laughs> Uh, and then the, the, continuing on in that verse, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Okay, I, I want you to look at this because this is kind of cool. The whole multitude of his disciples are crying out, okay? This is not just the 12. This is the entire crowd, possibly thousands upon thousands of people rejoicing and praising God. And they're not doing it loud, or sorry, they're not doing it sheepishly. They're doing it loudly for everybody to hear. They don't care who hears it. And think about that. Who, who would hear this? Sure, it would be like, you know, people in the town, other Jews and things like that. Pharisees, we're going to talk about them later. But it would also be the Roman government and the officials that are there. So this was pretty risky. Why, why would they do this? So I just lost myself in my notes. Hang on. Uh, essentially crowning the, the, okay, people are risking it all on Jesus. They're essentially crowning the king of Israel who's under Roman rule. Now, I don't want to be political here, but I think a modern example would help us understand how, how big of a, a deal this is, okay? So picture this. Imagine millions upon millions of people getting together and marching on Beijing, China, okay? Just going to leave it at that. Um, not only are they marching, but they're carrying flags and they're saying, down with Xi Jinping. Not only that, but they're also heralding this nobody, this rice farmer as their new chosen leader. And they're openly swearing allegiance to that rice farmer. And all of this is done openly in a procession marching into their capital building. Now, can you see this going well if it happened today? Not at all. China would not allow for this type of rioting and disrespect. But this is what the people are doing. They're openly spitting on Rome and backing this carpenter from Nazareth as their new king. Now, again, why would they do this? Because this is a really bold move. And, and read the verse again. Because of all the mighty works that they had seen. Not just heard, but witnessed. The crowd knew uh, the crowd that was with him knew that Jesus was something special, okay? Granted, as we'll see, they missed the mark of, of really why he came there ultimately. But, but they did get this right. Jesus was their messianic king. 
And they saw Jesus fulfilling prophecies. They heard John the Baptist point to Jesus as the greater one. They'd seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. They had no doubt heard of all these other miracles of Christ and they, they didn't care. They were like, you know what? Jesus is our king and we're all in. All right, verse 38. <clears throat> Blessed is the king, or sorry, th these are the, this is the crowd. This is what they're saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, Matthew and Mark write in their gospel that the people also cry out, Hosanna, son of David, Hosanna in the highest. Now, this is not a contradiction in the gospels. Uh, a lot of things were being shouted from the crowds. And so what the, the New Testament writers probably did was they all kind of said what they thought was applicable to the story and the narrative that they were telling, okay? Um, the, and, and what's cool about is what they're saying here, what the crowds are saying right here is not just, they're not just making it up on the spot, okay? This is scripture, and, and so what we're going to do is we're going to put a bookmark here and go to Luke, or sorry, put our bookmark in Luke uh, and go to Psalm 118, okay? Psalm 118. But before I go on, you guys can go ahead and, and go there. Um, I'm, I'm going to try a little experiment, okay? Let me get some water first. Hang on. Okay. I want you guys to finish the line, if you can, in tune, okay? Hey, June, don't be afraid. All right, good job, clap for yourself, that was good. All right, here's another one, this one's fun. <clears throat> I know you wanna leave me, but I refuse to let you go. I have to beg him, come on, for your sympathy. This is not going well, come on. <laughs> I thought you guys would get that one. Oh, that's all right, you guys know the song though, right? Okay, okay, you just don't wanna sing. I was hoping you guys would stand up and just start going to town, but. That's all right. All right, here's the last one. And when I think that God, his son, not sparing. Amen. All right, so what you guys just participated in is, is the reason I love my job. Okay, we sang one line of a song and you recalled the whole song in your mind. Even though we only sang a section, you guys were like, I know that song. I know the full song. So this is why the Psalms are quoted so often. They're memorized poems that are sung to inform and instruct the listener. So when a person would say a line from a particular Psalm, it would do the same for them as what it did for you guys, okay? All right, so here we go, Psalm 118. This Psalm is called, his steadfast love endures forever. And it's a, song, a psalm about redemption, a poem that points to God being faithful and saving his people from their surrounding enemies. It starts off by the psalmist urging Israel to, to lean into God and, and trust in God's enduring love and favor. And it says, those who call upon the name of the Lord will be rescued. And when you're fearful, God's gonna answer. Because those who fear and trust the Lord, it, it's gonna go better for you than if you just trusted in man. And when enemies have circled around you like a, like a swarm of bees, God is right there. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. 
Blind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. So do you see why this is the psalm that the people would choose to be singing in the streets right now? Throwing down their cloaks, praising God, saying, God, you have finally answered our prayers. We, we've been praying for deliverance, praying for the restoration of Israel, and it's finally here. And there's this joyful, jubilant, just celebration. There's like a buzz, an almost electric feel in this crowd. Okay? Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, remember I told you we were going to talk about the Pharisees, so here we go. Uh, crowds have gone beyond the control of the Pharisees. Their power and presence is just dwarfed by the Son of Man, and, and this is just this huge processional. And so they've lost all authority, and so what do they do? With all their source, or sorry, with all their angst and their anger, they go to the source of the problem. Jesus is the cause. And so they go right up to him and command him, hey, settle these people down. Because they know the scriptures and, and they know that probably better than anybody else other than Jesus. And so they hear that these men and women are quoting scripture and attributing God's praise to Jesus. And they're just furious, but they're powerless. Jesus, do you hear that these people are giving praise that's only reserved for God? How dare you? You need to stop them right now this is blasphemy. And look how Jesus responds. Verse 40. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, there are two very different interpretations on this verse. The first is the more obvious, which is an affirmation of what the people are, are saying right here. It would not be right to stifle the praise and worship of those people because what they're doing is in accordance with truth. Jesus is worthy of all the praise that they're giving them, or that they're giving him, and if they were somehow made to be silent, uh, their, their joy and their celebration would be stifled that even the stones themselves would cry out and celebrate what God is about to do. So why fight it, okay? That's the first interpretation. The other is not as visible, but it does kind of lead next into what the, the rest of the passage says, okay? Um, remember, who is Jesus talking to here? He's talking to the Pharisees. The, the, the Bible scholars of the day, right? And so again, place your bookmark here in Luke. Now go to Habakkuk chapter two. And um, more, more specifically, chapter two, uh, two, verses nine through 11. Uh, this is woe to the Chaldeans. You could start in verse six, but, but I think it'll all make sense with verse nine. So Habakkuk two, nine. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust game to place his nest on high and escape the hand of disaster. You have plotted shame for your house by cutting off many peoples and forfeiting your life. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will echo it from the woodwork. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by iniquity. So here, here what's going on is Habakkuk is pronouncing judgment on the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. They've profited from, profited? Profited? Profited. From wickedness and built their nation on the backs of oppression and atrocities. Even their buildings were built through bloodshed, through lust and evil gain. And so Habakkuk is saying that even these stones in the walls are testaments to your evil ways. You can't escape the judgment that is coming to you, O Babylon. 
even if you cleanse yourself and look good on the outside, the very walls of your homes, your cities, and your nations cry out to God for justice. Okay? Now, I, I personally think that Jesus is really referencing both here. Okay? Because I think both are true. Jesus is saying, look, the people are right to praise me because I'm who they say they are. But also, the Jews are just about to turn their backs on Christ. The king that they're heralding on Sunday and, and rejoicing and celebrating and throwing their cloaks down, they're going to turn their backs on him come Friday. And they're going to cry out loud, crucify, crucify, crucify. We have no king but Caesar. And so Jesus is, is telling these Pharisees, Judgment is coming on all of Israel. Jesus is indeed the Messiah come to pronounce God's kingdom has arrived and to bring peace and justice. But the people's sin is too great and they will stop championing Jesus as their king. And so the rocks will cry out and testify of their sin. Israel, you are not innocent. And they'll drink upon themselves the judgment of God for what they're about to do to him. Now verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Now I want you to notice the contrast here. Okay, what, what are the crowds doing? They're whooping and hollering, you know, waving goodbye to, uh, to Rome, um, throwing caution to the wind, laying down palm branches and cloaks and singing at the top of their lungs. They're saying, our king is here, our king is here, we're saved, Hosanna in the highest pure joy, utter celebration, praising God as loud as possible. That's what the crowd is doing. But what's Jesus doing? He's riding in on this donkey, watching this processional unfold right before him. And he looks up to Jerusalem and he weeps. Now the picture here isn't that he just lets one tear fall from his eye and he sniffles a bit. Jesus is probably wailing right here, like weeping loudly. And why? Because they don't get it. I mean, look at what Jesus said, 42. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Israel, you missed it. You were the chosen people. Of all the people that were supposed to get it, you were supposed to get it. And you had peace itself, the embodiment and full fulfillment of complete shalom with you. And the work that, that Jesus is about to do is going to bring it for all mankind. But what? It was hidden from their eyes. They didn't see it. They missed it. Verse 43. Again, this is Jesus talking. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another because you didn't know the time of your visitation. Jesus predicts that soon enemies will do five things. Set up a barricade, surround you, hem you in on every side, kill you, and leave not one stone upon another. And this is exactly what happened. I'll show you a photo here. This is current day Jerusalem. This is what this looks like. In April of 70 AD, the Roman general Titus, who would in a few years' time be the emperor of Rome, marched into Jerusalem and encircled the city. And it was the time of Passover, so pilgrims were allowed to come into Jerusalem, but they didn't let anybody out. They built a wall around the city and cut off supplies 
to drive the Jews to starvation. And when the people were too weak to fight, and most of them had already succumbed to starvation, his armies breached and they massacred the rest. He then ordered his troops to destroy the temple and heave the stones of the wall down to the ground. So this is what Jesus saw. He saw their defiance, their disobedience, and their lack of vision. Remember the verse, he who has eyes, let him see. They didn't have eyes. They were blind. And their disloyalty to God led to the consequences of their actions. Okay. There's a lot of verses to go through. Um, So what's the point of all this, right? What can we learn from this passage? And I'm going to give you three takeaways. The first is this. Jesus is the Christ. Unlike the crowds in this story, I hope you've seen the prophecies fulfilled in Christ. Historical and prophetic that were written hundreds of years before Jesus, but all of which that point to Jesus. From the virgin birth in Isaiah to the donkey in Bethany from Zechariah, Jesus hit every single one. And even the ones in Genesis too. I hope you've heard of the life-changing teaching of Christ. Not just wise words from a teacher, but life-changing words from God himself. Sermons and parables and teachings that drew thousands upon thousands to come and hear him teach because they would go, how is it that this guy teaches with so much authority, so much passion, so much truth? There's got to be something to this Jesus guy. Unlike the crowds, I hope you paid attention to the miracles that are performed. Miracles that show Christ's divinity, healing of the blind, the sick, the hurting, the resurrecting of Lazarus, spiritual healing of people like Zacchaeus. Miracles that in him is the full authority of heaven. Now, I also want to point out that these stories aren't just fables or tall tales, as the world would have you believe. This is history. Did you know that Luke's gospel is written decades after Christ's death and resurrection. In fact, all of the gospels are understood by historians and critics alike, Christian, non-Christian. It's it's understood that all of these are written within the first century. So in terms of historical antiquities, there's not much debate on the legitimacy of this text. It's an early record. And as such, it's very powerful and virtually undisputed source for history. And this proven historical, highly researched document from Dr. Luke says that Jesus is the Christ and that this was a belief that was held by all the disciples. Now, if this was a false claim, if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, then the disciples wouldn't have maintained the truth of the gospel, that Jesus was the Christ, that he lived a perfect life and died and was resurrected three days later. They would have, they would have walked away from that, especially in spite of persecution, imprisonment, and execution. They held to that truth. They held to that story. You don't die for a cause you don't believe in. Here's the second point. This is a crucial doctrine. This is is non-negotiable in Christendom. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the chosen one of God, second member of the Trinity, fully divine, fully man, sent by the Father to be the visible God, to die as our king, to receive our due penalty of death and separation from God, to be the bearer of God's wrath so that we don't have to be. 
and then to rise three days later, which validates everything he said as being true. And lastly, this is point number three, respond appropriately. Because all of this demands a response. Again, if this were just a feel-good religious story aimed at making you live your best life and, you know, this self-help book, then I'd say, okay, guys, here's, here's a story. Just take it or leave it. Have a good day. But the gospel is not this way because this is historical. This is factual. And so it demands a response. And for me, I think one of the most powerful things in this story is verse 41, that when Jesus saw the city, he wept. Think about that. Jesus wept. After seeing the contrast of the joy in the people's hearts, but knowing their imminent betrayal, to years of battles with the religious leaders and debates about theology and, and giving perfect answers 100% of the time, he looks out and sees what's about to happen to these people. And he weeps. Guys, our God is a God of compassion and love. If nothing else, take that with you forever. God is not an angry tyrant. Nor is he this God that, that the world thinks simply demands obedience on the threat of hell. Like, if you don't do what I say, I'm going to send you to hell. That's not God. Jesus here shows us the true nature of God. Our God has compassion on the very people that would execute him. Love for people that today are praising him as king, but come Friday, they're going to sing a different tune. Jesus weeps for these people. He didn't laugh. He didn't go, I told you so. He didn't raise his finger and shake it at everyone. Instead, he hung his head. God hung his head and he wept. God is weeping at the brokenness of man. Our God is the type of God that looks out with outstretched arms, nailed to a block of wood, broken and bruised, struggling to breathe, covered in blood, naked. And as they're, they're bringing him up from the cross, he just cries out, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And right now you might be at a fork in your spiritual walk. You've seen and heard the stories and the verses. And right now you're feeling a tug on your heart. You need to make a choice. Will you right now make Jesus the Lord of your life? Don't be like these people. Missing the point because they didn't, as verse 44 says, they didn't know the time of their visitation. They missed that their peace was found not in their situation being better. They wouldn't have peace when Rome would fall. Just like our peace isn't found when our candidate is in office or when our job is better or when our kids are more obedient or when our marriage is as it should be. Our peace is in Jesus. I'm going to invite the band on stage. Um, we're going to sing the song Cornerstone because that's who Jesus is. He is the cornerstone of our faith, of our identity, of our gospel, or of his gospel. And if you need to give Jesus your life to proclaim him as Lord, would you make that right response today? You can do it right here and right now, or you can come up We'll have people praying for you. Forrest is right here. I'm sure he'd love to pray with you. Or you can, again, you can sit in your seat and just admit, God, I'm, 
I'm broken. I've been trying to do it on my own and I can't. God, I've, I've incurred a debt to you that I could never pay. I've spit in your face and I need Jesus. I need your forgiveness. Let's pray. God, I'm humbled by you at thinking about you crying over us, over a lost and dying people that just continually get it wrong. And God, that that leads you to compassion. It leads you to love. And it led you to send Jesus. You could have stayed. You could have just walked away. But so that you would receive glory and that we would praise you, you sent your son Jesus to die for me and for everybody here. God, I pray the truth of that would ring clear, that we would have eyes to see your glory and ears to hear of the good news in Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir in us. If we are unbeliever, God, that it would stir in us a passion for your gospel. And God, that we would turn to you and say, I need you, Jesus, and only you, Jesus. And God, that you would save them. And God, as believers, that would reignite the flame that we once had when we were early believers. God, that you would give us zeal for you and your kingdom and your gospel. God, that you would energize us to get out and share the gospel, to not squander what we've been given. And God, that your, your gospel gives us joy and confidence. We love you and we give you our praise because you alone are worthy of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to give to our ministry, please check out our website at lewistonocc.org. And don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, so you're always up to date with what's going on here at Orchards Community Church. Take care, and God bless.